Stand by, we're about to begin. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the BMC webinar, Managing vSphere with BCO. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to turn the call over to Mr. Steve Johnson. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, oh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Thank you for uh, attending this call today or, or this webinar. Um, as you have heard, this is uh, the topic today is uh, an overview of managing vSphere using BCO. 9.5. This is part one of a two-part series, the second of which will uh, run probably in the um, sort of late January, February timeframe uh, in sort of next year. Uh, for the purpose of today's call, uh, I will be handing over to Mr. Sudhir Apta, who will walk us through the, uh, the remainder of the presentation. So, uh, Sudhir, if you're ready, then uh, I'll hand the presentation over to yourself. Thanks, Steve. So, I'm moving the the slide presentation forward. As Steve said, this is a best practice seminar webinar as part of our series. Uh, this one is about managing vSphere using BCO, specifically 9.5. Uh, and also, as Steve said, this is part one of a two-part webinar. Just want to repeat our legal notice that we always make. All the recommendations and everything you see here are subject to change and or cancellation. It's not a guarantee or a warranty. So um, we're going to go through um, some simple examples of how you use BCO to manage vSphere. And first, let me give you some context. Uh, as far as BCO is concerned, vSphere is one of many platforms that it supports. And uh, the way BCO manages vSphere can be in, a, in multiple contexts. There's a core context, which is the virtualized environment of vSphere that's being managed directly by a customer. So the customer is running vCenter with some clusters, and that is the uh, environment that's being managed. So in that case, vCO has many out-of-the-box features that were added specifically for vSphere. Uh, virtual farm views, recommendations that are specific for vSphere that were added in 9.5. And then the virtual planner study profile uh, for the vSphere platform. And time forecasting model, what if events that are specific for vSphere. So these are examples of key elements in vCO features that were added specifically for vSphere. But vSphere is also used in other contexts, uh, such as in an on-premise cloud environment, where they have automated provisioning, but it's all on-premise. So that's a typical case for vCloud Director. Uh, so usually you deploy vSphere and vCloud Director together. Uh, for that also, VCO has specific uh, features that were added, the vCloud capacity visibility and built-in integration using an ETL. Similarly, for a cloud provider environment, uh, we have BMC Cloud Lifecycle Management, CLM, and you can use that on vSphere and other platforms. For that particular integration, BCO also has additional features, Kappa, CCV, and chargeback, which are placement, capacity view, and showback reports. So all of these features are specific to vSphere in a way. Uh, today we'll be talking about the core virtualized environment, about how you manage vSphere. So within that, to set the context, there's 
what we call infrastructure capacity, which is on the right-hand side, you have a large infrastructure that can host all these VMs on the left-hand side, which we might refer to as workloads. That's what many people call them uh, when they're managing virtualized environments. And here, for infrastructure capacity management, the task is to ensure that all the workloads have enough resources and not to waste resources. And here, we basically assume that the VMs are correctly sized to meet their SLAs, meaning that they have enough memory and CPU already assigned. So the allocation of memory that they have is sufficient to do the job that's running inside them. Um, this you might think of as sort of a wholesale management of a large capacity infrastructure uh, with lots and lots of VMs being added on it. And this is the normal case or the more common case. Um, this will be covered in this webinar, the part one. But there's another angle to this. That is the workload capacity uh, context is where you want to examine a particular workload, which in this case would be a particular VM, and to ensure that that VM is sized correctly for its workload demand and SLA, to make sure that it performs well. And that depends on whether it's an interactive workload or a batch workload and how much memory and how much CPU, et cetera, it needs. This phase we will cover in the part two webinar. So uh, what are the capacity-limiting resources in vSphere? Uh, in this table, we try to give you an overview. So as far as CPU is concerned, there are a number of vCPUs assigned to each VM, and that's a scarce resource. Then there are resource pools on which you can assign limits and reservations. Although these are not often used, I think these are very important, and we will go into them in a little more depth in this talk. Um, the ESXi cores. Uh, can be physical, or if it has multi-threading, then the host has logical CPU cores as well. Uh, on the memory, uh, there's OS memory, there's VM memory, again, resource pool limits and reservations for memory, and the ESXi memory and overhead. Of course, these are all aggregated at the cluster level as well. For this space, um, at the OS level, you have file systems and partitions, and for the VM image itself, you use this space. You have config files for the VM and virtual disks, which implement the disk that you see inside the operating system. Also, vSphere has a feature called snapshots, with which you can create point-in-time snapshots of your VM. Those take up a lot of disk space as well. Uh, the data stores that all these images and config files are stored on come in various types. You can have VMDK based data stores. Um, that is, they store VMDK files on them, but VMFS is the name of the file system that they use. Uh, data stores can also be hosted directly on NSS volumes. You can also have uh, RDM disks that are used directly by the VM, they are data stores. And multiple data stores can be grouped together into data store clusters, which is a newer feature in vSphere 5. Uh, beneath the data stores, you can have block devices, which are mounted on ESXi as local disks, or as fiber channel or iSCSI, or similar kind of disks. There's very limited view on those from the vSphere infrastructure, but you do have some understanding of what they are. Finally, disk I.O. and network I.O. are also capacity-limiting resources. The disk I.O. in particular is quite interesting for vSphere. 
because there's a whole VM kernel stack, um, and you have measurements at various points of IOPS, queues, and latencies. That's because, as you say above, there are various levels of disk as well. So by vDisk, by data store, or by block device. So this is a target-rich environment for managing capacity. These resources are arranged in the form of entities. Um, all of these entities are stacked so that they depend on each other. At the top, of course, is the application. But the OS that the application runs on is usually the normal OS with no modifications. It manages application access to the virtualized hardware. And these are hosted on the VM virtual machine. There have been many releases or versions of the virtual machine. Right now we are at, I think, VM version 10 or so. This consumes resources, the actual resources, and presents virtualized hardware to the OS. These can be hosted in vSphere resource pools, which are subdivision of resources. They run on ESXi clusters, uh, which are composed of ESXi hosts. The hosts are the ones that control ultimately all the hardware resources, the CPU, the memory, disk I.O., memory I.O. And the I.O. can be on data stores, uh, VMFS or NFS ones. We don't show the other type, the RDM disk here. And they are of two different kinds of file system. So uh, in order to manage a vCR environment, you do have to represent uh, these dependencies in some way. And VCO does all that. So let's plunge in. Let's first talk about resource pools. VMware resource pools are a general mechanism, unlike in many other virtualization environments. So they can be used in two ways. You can either use them as just labels for different workloads or VMs, so you can group them together because they were maybe created for different purposes or maybe because they belong to different customers or something like that. Or, more effectively, they can be used as pools of resources, that is CPU and memory, with workloads in them that can consume those resources. And you do that by using vSphere settings of reservations and limits. These settings help you to control admission of new VMs. That is, when a new VM is created, it will be created only if it has enough resources to satisfy its reservation. Uh, we'll discuss this through a short example. Uh, consider this uh, large, uh, rather large cluster containing 32 hosts and over one terahertz of total CPU. And uh, the more familiar picture for such a cluster is on the bottom right, which is an analysis, a time analysis over the month of November. And it shows only two numbers, the actual total megahertz, which is the total megahertz usage uh, metric, which is the green line, and the actual total usage, which is the usage in megahertz. I'm sorry, the, the above one was the total megahertz, and the blue line is the usage in megahertz. And you can view this in another way on the top left, which is a correlation map-based analysis. And that's showing you, again, CPU usage in megahertz on the x-axis, how many vCPUs are running or how many VMs are running, both. The VMs are the green dots and so on. This will give you an idea of the ranges of the CPU usage and the ranges of the number of vCPUs and number of VMs running. 
In the vSphere infrastructure view bottom left, you do see the summary for each cluster when you click on it uh, of all these configuration numbers. So about 20 resource pools were defined for this particular cluster, but no reservations or limits were set. So they use as much CPU and memory as they want. So in this example, uh, we see multiple organizations, I suppose, that own the VMs that are part of a particular pool. So the resource pools are named after those organizations. And in this, uh, again, this is a time analysis, a stacked area graph. You see the CPU demand over the month, that is the usage megahertz, over that same month, November. And you can see them sorted. Uh, so you can also pick the, say, the top four of them, service support, service assurance, customer support, data center automation, I guess, those four resource pools, and analyze the demand of these four in terms of memory and CPU. That's at the bottom. So on the x-axis, you have CPU usage in, in megahertz. And on the y-axis, you have consumed memory. And you can see how these different resource pools are clustered in how they're using the resources. So that's all very well. That's basically analyzing the resource pools as simply groups of workloads. But I mentioned earlier that you really should use resource pools to partition CPU and memory, and they become much more useful. So you should use these reservation and limit parameters. The way you use them is as follows. As a simple example up above, there are two pools, resource pools defined, let's say in a cluster. Uh, pool 1 has a reservation set to R1, the blue portion. And it has a limit set to L1, that's the white portion, plus the, the blue portion. And what that means is that the pool 1 is allowed to add VNs. Uh, all the way up to the limit L1, if that resource is available, if there are no other resources that are already using too much resource. R1 is guaranteed because it's part of the reservation of the pool. And by contrast, pool 2 has a reservation R2 set, but it has no limit set, which means that pool 2 could use up all of R2, and it could also expand into U, which is the unreserved capacity in the cluster. So the total capacity of the cluster is obviously R1 plus R2 plus U. And this is how these pools allow you to uh, protect some of the reservations, um, some of the uh, resources using reservations and limits. And you can play with these numbers to get the right combination that you want. At the bottom, you see a screenshot from the built-in VCA infrastructure view. Um, this resource pools view was added more recently. Um, it's definitely 9.5, and it may also be 9.04, I believe. So here you see for each resource pool uh, whether a reservation has been set, how much it is, and whether limits have been set, and how much they are, both for CPU and for memory. In general, uh, it is a question, it's a good question, what is the capacity of a resource pool? So assuming you set resources, uh, reservations, and limits, for your resource pools. Then we can see how uh, an example resource pool would behave. So at the bottom right corner, you have the total usage 
and the total megahertz available for the cluster that we saw before. And the bottom left, you see all the usage for all these resource pools, which we also saw before. But we are taking the largest consuming resource pool, the service support one, that's at the bottom, the blue one. And we've, uh, we've created a time analysis for that in the top left corner. That shows the blue line, which is the, uh, the same usage that you saw at the bottom. And you also see a light blue line below that, which is a CPU computed limit PES, which is a pessimistic assumption limit. Uh, and you see a green line, which is a CPU computed limit OPT, which is the optimistic limit. Uh, what they mean is as follows. The optimistic limit is assuming no contention. That is, if you assume that all the undeserved capacity in the cluster is for me, that is my resource pool, in addition to my own reservation, then that is the limit effectively. So if you want, you can say, what is the remaining or residual capacity remaining for this resource pool? If it were, if it were allowed to expand without letting any of the other resource pools expand, and then that's the number, the optimistic number that you get. Conversely, if you ask the question, what if I needed to share with all the other resource pools an equal amount of the remaining unreserved resources? Then what is my limit? And in that case here, you find that the pessimistic limit that you compute with those assumptions is actually already exceeded here because obviously this particular resource pool we are looking at is larger than most of the others, in fact, all the others. Okay. So what BCO is doing here is is giving you two different interpretations of limit. And you can use that either for reporting, it makes sense, or you can use it for your analysis. Um, also, uh, these optimistic and pessimistic limits become better and better as you start using the reservations and limits in vSphere because they take those into account. In this particular example, of course, I told you that none of the reservations were used. They were, none of them were set, so they're all zero. And limits were not set either. So if you just took the CPU computer limit pessimistic and you simply plotted a time chart of that for all the resource pools, then you find that they all have exactly the same limit, clearly, because they're all just sharing all the unreserved space. Not very useful, but it's one way to look at how much capacity they have. So that was for resource pools. Now let's talk a little bit about the data sources for vSphere, which are the mechanisms by which you can get data out of vSphere. So at the, yeah, the left-hand side, you see the infrastructure stack or all the entities that we talked about before. The bottom portion of that graph, starting from the virtual machine all the way down to the data store, those entities, um, the data for that is available from vCenter. And the recommended method of extracting the data is the vCenter extractor service. And it extracts all those different system types in VCO that you see. And that's the recommended way of getting all your data for infrastructure capacity management with vSphere. And this is an out-of-the-box connector. And it's the one that we always add all the new features to. Uh, if you're extracting data about the application or the workload itself or processes within the OS or about the OS itself, then you need a different data source. You need BPA and you need certain BPA extractors. They don't extract process data, but other than that, they extract all the other data you need from the OS and for workload level 
aggregation. And the system types that are important there are virtual node, VMware, and workload. So for focus analysis of critical applications, you need both kinds of data because you need data from all parts of the stack. But as if you're just managing the infrastructure capacity at the what we call the wholesale level, then you just need the vCenter extractor service. The way it works, I think, should be familiar to most of the people here. For the infrastructure capacity piece, the blue rectangle, uh, we have vSphere exposing the SDK API, and the vCenter extractor service extracting from that. That runs in the ETL engine and loads the data into BCO data warehouse. It loads metrics and entities, and of course, relationships. And finally, this data is available on the left in the BCO console workspace, the virtual farm infrastructure view, and in the new feature called recommendations. If you are also extracting data about the workloads, the focused analysis of workloads, then at the bottom you see the Linux or Windows images running inside the VM. From that, you need a VPA collector, either through proxy or a managed node collector, to collect the data, bring it to the BPA application server, which was traditionally called the BPA console, which generates WIS files, and we extract those in the BPA WIS file parser running on the ETL engine and load it into the VCO data warehouse. The WIS file method is the recommended one, of course, in this case, because you're going to be storing all the data in VCO data warehouse. In the vCenter extractor service, for the case where you are extracting data from the core vSphere infrastructure, we recommend you don't change anything in the setting. Um, so just leave the defaults as they are. Uh, the 4.x compatibility, you don't, you don't need that usually. So don't import virtual machine metrics at the host level, only at the VM level. For data types, uh, extract all the metrics, including the virtual machine level metrics, as it's shown there. The saver period, there's usually no reason to change it. Keep it at one hour. I'll explain what that means in the next slide. For lookup sharing, um, normally there's no need to share, but if you if you are sharing with enterprise CMDB uh, or something like that, then you can choose the sharing status. Finally, the ETL configuration itself, uh, again, the aggregation period below, there's no need to change that. And that's how you configure it. As far as how it works and how to size it, um, you might know that vCenter itself creates samples at different time granularities, typically 20-second intervals, for all the performance metrics. And the vCenter extractor service polls vCenter every 15 minutes and extracts all the sample values added since the time of the last poll, which comes to about 45 values per metric, depending on the sample length. And then this vCenter extractor service aggregates the values over the aggregation period, which is by default an hour, and it loads the aggregated values every hour into the data warehouse staging area. So only one value is loaded every hour typically. Um, and slowly changing metrics, which are configuration metrics, they are not necessarily loaded every hour, of course. If they don't change, then they're loaded only once a day. Uh, for scaling, you can split collection among multiple extractors by using the extract clusters list box. Uh, that's in the configuration screen that I just showed you. As far as sizing considerations for the ETL engine, 
a single ETL engine machine can run no more than four service connectors. This is explained in the BCO online documentation as well. But because it's different for the extractor service than for others, I'm just repeating it here. Uh, the point is that the service connectors use heap memory in the scheduler process, so you should increase the heap size. And we have some numbers there to guide you. Also notice that the total heap size should remain within half the total memory of the ETL engine machine, so sometimes you do have to go to the larger 8 gig RAM size ETL engine machine. As far as the BPA virtual nodes WIS file parser, uh, and the CDB extractor as well, for x86-based OS images. So that's what we want here. We want the Windows and Unix OS metrics for the OSs that are running inside VMs. And this particular parser can handle all of these system types of the below. VMware, also Hyper-V and Zen. Here we are also, of course, talking only about VMware. And other than that, the configuration is very similar to any other any other uh, ETL. The sizing guidelines for this are also the same as all BPA ETLs. We also have vCenter history extractor, which is the more, um, it was always there in, in older versions of BCO, and it continues to be there today. But really, we recommend that you use this only for filling data gaps in case of a break in collection or something like that, where the vCenter has the data, but you did not collect in real time for some reason. That's because not all metrics are available with this method. Um, if you are interested in the gory details why, uh, please do refer to the knowledge article that comes with it. And so we always recommend the vCenter extractor service to be used. As far as sizing of the AS machine, something new has come up in 9.5. We allow you to relocate the back-end services away from the data hub. And if you do that, it can improve resilience and balance the workload because the data hub is supporting many different features. One of the features it's supporting is uh, support for multiple remote ETL engines. So every ETL engine remote that you add adds a workload on the data hub. And so this method of now being able to relocate backend services away from the data hub and onto other service containers in 9.5, uh, it can help you to scale out even better. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about spare capacity analysis and how to set thresholds, particularly for vSphere. Spare capacity analysis is quite important for vSphere because vSphere is often used in a very high volume uh, provisioning use case where people are constantly asking how much room is there for additional VMs on my clusters. So that's the key use case, finding clusters with enough resources. And the methodology for doing it is usually to find the cluster spare capacity by resource, that is by CPU, by memory, by disk space, and then count it in some terms uh, that are more meaningful for somebody who's trying to provision VMs. And what would be more meaningful than counting how many VMs it can, it can support? So find the limiting resource, which is the resource with the minimum number of spare VMs that can support. These uh, spare VMs, uh, how do you estimate how much demand they must have. You can either choose typical VM, that is look at the average utilization of the existing VMs in the cluster, or you can use a custom demand by specifying your utilization manually. And both these methods are supported, as you know, with the out-of-the-box virtual farm. 
you can also, before you provision, check to make sure that the cluster is not under some sort of pressure. Because even if it looks like it has enough capacity, sometimes there can be memory pressure or CPU pressure or something like that. And all of these are available at a glance from the virtual farm. So um, in the vSphere summary on the top, you can see the gross capacity available at the vCenter level. You can also go down at the cluster level. And in the VMware cluster used an available capacity view. This view is specifically meant for this use case. So you can see at a glance there's a spare VM column, which tells you how many more VMs this, uh, this cluster could take. And the spare VM basis, which is the column right next to it, with the word typical in it, that tells you the basis. That is, how much demand we are assuming for that VM. And at the bottom of the screen, you can see how to change the demand. You can either say, continue to use the typical VM, which is the average VM that's already running in the cluster, or you can customize it to change the number of spare VMs. And also at the middle uh, screen, the last column is limiting resource, which is the memory or CPU, or in, in fact, this space, whatever is limiting you on that cluster level. So this is all very well if you just want to know how much capacity there is. For spare VMs, um, the number, as I said, we divide the used resource by the number of running VMs to find the average VM usage. And this is the typical spare VM size. And we do this for CPU memory and storage in 9.5. And on top of that, we apply any thresholds that are specified in the global thresholds list. And then we take the remaining available resource to see how many spare VMs would fit. So this is very logical. You can also control the thresholds as you always could by going to the resource monitor thresholds page that you see at the bottom and change the thresholds. In the farm itself, also, there are settings uh, for thresholds and for indicator parameters. And what indicator parameters are, I will explain a little bit more in detail uh, in a future section here. But the point is that all of these different thresholds can be managed, and you can set them. So you can set them at a generic level, all systems or business drivers, or for a particular type of system or business driver. And you can also set them specifically for a particular system or business driver, or based on being inside a particular domain. So you have quite a bit of control over how you set these thresholds in DCO. The same threshold settings you could also use while you're doing an analysis in the workspace. So there's an example of a virtual machine CPU utilization uh, because you've set error and warning thresholds. Uh, when you're creating the analysis or editing it, you can use the resource monitor thresholds, uh, either choose to use those, or you can set them manually in the chart. In other words, setting thresholds is easy with BCO. The hard part, of course, is finding out what values to set them to in most cases. For CPU and memory, it's customary to say you need so much percent of the total capacity, and that's all very well. But particularly for vSphere, uh, disk I.O. tends to be a very hard uh, thing to set thresholds for. That's because it's very variable. But with BCO, you can do a lot. So you can find the right thresholds. Here's an example. Uh, you have two different data stores, and you have no idea what, what to set the thresholds to. You know that as the, um, as the I.O. pipe gets saturated, you should see more and more latency numbers, larger and larger latency numbers. But how large is large? That depends a lot on the particular data store. So it's important to see the range of latencies. 
Uh, effective way of doing that is to create correlation models. Uh, in this case, correlation and uh, just a correlation analysis, not even a model, just so that you can spread them out and see how many, how often um, the latency is high and what is the range. So these are two different data stores you're looking at. The top one goes from 1 to 14 millisecond latency numbers. And notice that the read rates that are on the x-axis are very similar for both of them. So you can actually compare them. The bottom one seems to go from half a millisecond to 2.5 milliseconds. So you can clearly see that the latency range for the lower data store is much narrower, and the latency numbers are also much smaller. The absolute number uh, doesn't really matter when you're managing infrastructure like this. Where it matters is if you have SLAs for the application running in the VM that require a certain response time. Very few applications really require response times better than either of these two data stores, so they're both probably fine. But it's important when you are trying to find out whether there's spare capacity. So you want to see whether the behavior of the underlying data store has changed or not. So correlation maps are very useful for this, uh, not just useful for finding correlations, but in fact for finding ranges of key indicators or metrics so that you can set thresholds. Okay, what about risk mitigation and recommendations, the new recommendations feature? So out of the box in the virtual farm and in the recommendations feature, we can support the following things. We can find a list of VMs to be watched because they're showing CPU distress, say, or memory distress, ready time or hypervisor ballooning or swapping. We can also watch hosts, clusters, and data stores that are about to saturate using the days to saturation indicator. And BCO will also produce for you risk recommendations automatically. We'll see what these are now. First of all, the virtual farm views. Um, there's a VMware clusters memory view, uh, which shows memory overcommitment and ballooning and swapping numbers on a per cluster basis. At the bottom, you also see storage utilization, because there's a VMware cluster storage view as well. And if you find any risky areas, you can drill down into them and see the uh, VM level utilizations of various things. So you can see CPU usage, memory active, and storage used in a stacked uh, chart. These charts are all created automatically in the out-of-the-box virtual farm. You can also find risks by configuring alert rules. So if there are thresholds that you've already identified, uh, as you know, this was always true. You could, uh, you could create an alert rule. In 9.0, we added this ability to publish events to BBPM. I think it's 9.0 SP2. Uh, so if you have BBPM, then you can integrate these events into those, or you can just have it send you email, as you see below. So this is an example where an email has been automatically sent because a data store uh, days to crash, uh, severity critical, uh, it has a value of 6, whereas the threshold was set to 10, which means the value of this is less than 10, and that's the description of the alert, and it identifies which system it was on the left-hand column. And the new thing we've added is the out-of-the-box risk recommendations. So on a daily basis, a background task runs and it computes these recommendations. That is, they not, don't only uh, identify risky areas, that is, systems uh, that are approaching some risk indicator or something like that, 
but they also tell you what recommendations uh, it would make for what actions you should take to obviate that risk. Uh, I should mention that not only do you see a short description here, for example, um, based on the current trend, I'm reading the bottom left one. Uh, you will need additional resources to avoid saturation. Uh, it can say you should add storage this much for the next 30 days or so much for the next 90 days. Not only that, but also in the BCO product documentation, we have much longer explanations of what kinds of actions you could do and what additional things you could check based on troubleshooting guides and information from VMware. So um, hopefully you will find these useful. These are computed on a background basis because they save you the work of having to uh, rummage through all the data to find risky areas or where there's capacity risk and give you uh, very specific things you can check the vSphere infrastructure. A word about how this stuff works, uh, which was added new in 9.5. As you know, before 9.5, uh, usually these alert rules were uh, created from rule templates and scheduled by the user. It consisted of conditions with parameters and filters. And it took metrics and thresholds from the database and daily evaluated all these alert rules. And when it was successful, then created emails or traps or events or system status, as you saw in the previous uh, screenshot. In 9.5, the same mechanism has been maintained, and it has been enhanced, so that some rules can be created from rule templates to use not only the metrics and thresholds, but also these global parameters and indicators, um, and produce a daily evaluation. And if it's successful, create not just the events, but also the recommendations. So indicators are, uh, I'm reading the third paragraph here, uh, the kind of metric called an indicator. It's a derived quantity. It looks like a metric. It's calculated by a back-end service associated with the system. This back-end service is called auto-forecasting service, and you'll find it in the admin tab. And it generates indicators of this type. Uh, two examples here, IND, days to saturation for storage and so on, uh, IND oversubscription for memory, and so on. So the idea is that these are automatically created by the system because we have found that these are significant in some way, more than just raw metrics. And so uh, an alert is an event that's raised by the resource monitor, and that's still true. But what recommendations add is advice for the capacity manager. So using the indicators that were already computed and the metrics and the thresholds, they either identify a capacity risk that requires an action to avoid it, which is what we've been looking at in this section, or they can also identify an efficiency opportunity uh, where you can take an action to take advantage of it, and that we will discuss in the next section. The indicator parameters are parameters that you can set that modify how exactly the indicators are generated. So for example, you can see uh, days to saturation. Uh, for that, you can calculate the days to saturation based on uh, trend calculation for the last five days, for example. But you could change that if you wanted to make it longer or shorter. The frequently asked question about these recommendations is what happens when these recommendations show up in my system? Um, how long do they live? So the answer is that every processing of the rule instance overrides all the previous results. 
So a daily executed rule will create new recommendations and the old ones will go away. So the rule will keep firing as long as you don't fix the underlying issue or take any action. So you can always go to the rule instance and either modify the entity filter to exclude certain systems if you know that you don't want to look at those recommendations for those systems. Or you can modify the condition to deactivate the condition completely. But by default, you get all of them. So those are the features we have to manage risks and mitigate them. And now for the uh, what you would call the core piece, which is the apex of the feature set, uh, which is capacity optimization. Capacity optimization is about meeting SLAs with the optimal set of resources, right? So finding efficiencies can be at the infrastructure level. So virtual farm views, recommendations for optimizing capacity, or building your own analysis and workspace. Or tuning of critical workloads. That is, how much memory or CPU does this particular workload really need? Uh, that also you can do with work, workspace analyses. But some of the kinds of analysis that you can do uh, for critical workloads really requires uh, more information than is available for just from vSphere, as we saw. There are certain parts of the stack that are not collected, and uh, performance is, information is not available through vSphere. Also, you need to know something about the workload, because the answer for this may be different for interactive versus batch workloads and so on. So that's much more of a, um, a kind of analysis that requires more um, knowledge of the workload and, and more. We'll cover that in the part two of this best practices session. Right now, we'll concentrate on the finding efficiencies at infrastructure level. Just as we said we had recommendations for risk, we also have recommendations for efficiency. And you can see two risk ones at the top and two efficiency ones at the bottom. So for example, this cluster has VMs with old snapshots. Remove the old snapshots to reclaim 20 gigabytes of storage space. That's an example of an efficiency recommendation. And another one is this cluster has so many idle VMs and remove the idle VMs in the cluster to reclaim so much uh, storage space. Now, of course, what does old snapshots mean and what does idle VMs mean? All that, as you can imagine, is defined by those global parameters for indicators. So you can control all of that. You can also browse virtual farms because they do identify certain efficiency opportunities by default. So for example here, unused CPU cores and vCPU density, those are measures that are computed automatically. Uh, there are lots of efficiencies related to memory capacity that raise a lot of questions, particularly for vSphere platform. Um, so, you know, I've just listed some typical questions here. Cluster memory utilization is pegged, always between 95 to 100%. Is this an indication of memory contention? Well, no, the relevant metrics are consumed memory, active memory, ballooning, and memory swap rate. Um, then another question might be, is VMware memory management working right in my environment? Uh, is it reclaiming memory using ballooning before using hypervisor swapping? Uh, for that also, relevant metrics are consumed memory, active memory, ballooning, and memory swap rate. Is the page sharing mechanism used effectively, and so on. So there are particular metrics that are important for answering these questions, and all of these are exposed to the virtual farm. Uh, some notes below that are also in the documentation, but consumed memory number that's shown in the farms is the last 30 days, 95th percentile. And the memory utilization uses consumed as numerator. So um, 
But if the memory utilization that you get from vSphere uses active memory as the numerator. Ballooning and swap rate are maximums over the last month plus fraction of current month. And other metrics are averages over the last month plus fraction of current month. Uh, there's a role table inside VCO that makes these calculations faster, but uh, for performance, uh, only some metrics are in the role table. That's the reason for these different uh, bases for computing all these metrics. The active and consumed memory question often comes up. Uh, consumed, uh, in a word, is the memory pages that are currently marked for a VM. That is, currently they are earmarked for that VM to use as physical memory. Whereas active is all those pages that have recently been used by a particular VM. So the active number is a much more uh, real-time number that tells you how active the workload is inside the VM. Whereas consumed is a number that shows how much of the memory of the host, roughly speaking, is devoted for that VM right now. That number can change because the host can take away some of that memory if needed for other uses. And if you plot uh, for a particular cluster, this is a particular cluster, large cluster, five terabytes of memory. And what we did was we plotted a correlation map again. Uh, CPU usage megahertz on the x-axis. That tells you how much CPU is being used overall. And the memory um, hourly average of both consumed and active on the same graph. And you can see how consumed grows, uh, does grow with the uh, CPU usage, but it tends to flatten out at a very high number, which is the capacity of the cluster. And as you approach the capacity, the uh, hosts keep uh, try to keep the consumed memory number low by taking away memory from VMs that don't seem to be using them. Whereas the active memory graph is a, is a very linear line. You don't even need to draw a regression line. You can see how linear it is, the green dots below. And that's because they're, it's straightforwardly measuring how much activity is taking place. So you can expect that it matches very well with CPU usage in megahertz. Um, but this plot tells you at a glance um, how much, at what point of CPU usage you should start expecting to see some memory contention as well. The efficiency goal in vSphere can appear in many guises. So you can have questions like load balancing between hosts, uh, for example, or between clusters. So one cluster has a lot of memory, another has a lot of CPU. How do I maximize the use? How do I maximize my ROI, so on? Uh, you can also have simple questions like finding the capacity of my infrastructure. So what is the I.O. capacity of my data store? That's another question. Or sometimes you can also use it to discover the configuration where you're not sure uh, what kind of storage my data stores are really backed with. So uh, to tackle the question of what is the I.O. capacity of my filer versus my array, so there are two different kinds of backing stores for my data stores. So I have two different data stores, one backed by a filer, uh, which is an NFS-based device, and the other backed by a block array, uh, which is a more, in fact, it's a modern, very fast array. So you can see the latency uh, is being plotted in another correlation map against the number of reads. Uh, to be precise, it's actually the, the number of bytes read on the data store total. So it's the total bytes read. And uh, on the, on the y-axis is the read latency average. So these are hourly numbers for a whole month. And you can see that 
there's a clear separation here between the block array, which is showing sub-millisecond response time consistently for these reads. And the array has been tested only until about 400 million reads in that month. But it appears to be always sub-millisecond, whereas the filer seems to be always above 2 milliseconds. And you see quite a bit of, uh, of variance as well in the, um, in the filer's latency numbers. Uh, you can see the small letters, the actual arrays and filers that we are using for this study down at the bottom right corner. You can also zoom out and check a different month maybe. And for that different month, we see uh, much higher numbers sometimes for latency from the filer. So it does show some outliers consistently um, with substantial variation. Whereas the array, the blue stuff, is still behaving quite well, even at 1,200 million, uh, not reads, but bytes read per second. So you can see that um, on the whole, the, um, the regression line also shows that the latency, you can, you can track it pretty well, uh, saying what is the capacity of the data store. Uh, you can also take two different filers, and even within them, there can be a lot of variation. The blue one, uh, here, we are, here we are plotting write latency versus writes, but the same idea as the read. So the blue filer, the latency is again highly variable. It goes all the way up to 200 milliseconds. Now, that kind of number it does start getting noticeable for the workloads. So we're not talking about the workloads here, just about the infrastructure but you can't help notice that this is a really large latency number occasionally. Whereas the green one seems to be fairly consistent. Um, it seems to have certainly been used a lot more at higher write rates, but it starts to really suffer around the 450 million writes mark, because after that you see the latency numbers are rising quite a bit for the green filer. That sort of tells you something, tells you a way to um, to look for. So if you want to find out risks or residual capacities, this would be a direction to start looking for the thresholds to set. And then, uh, again, comparison between two different NFS-backed data stores. The top one, 1 to 14 milliseconds, and the bottom one, 1 to 250 milliseconds. And then from tuning, uh, discovering configuration, here we found that there were um, suspicious numbers from two different data stores. And finally, we tried to compare them using a correlation map and analysis so that you, you found the, the space used for each data store one against the other. So to be clear, what's being mapped here is we took uh, the, the same metrics over the same time period, November 2013, and these are hourly numbers of, or rather daily numbers of space used for one data store versus the other data store. And you found a really high correlation, suspiciously high. And that usually tells you that this is really the same backing store. At the bottom, if you see, vSphere thinks that they're different because when the data stores were created, they were created using separate commands uh, that is, the 
VC or admin thought he was being given two different arrays. But in fact, the storage admins had created these two on the same volume. So he was actually using the same volume for two different data stores. And there was no way of discovering this really from just looking at the VCO data, unless you actually put them together like this in VCO. So sometimes what looks like a tuning issue is not really tuning, it's really discovering a misconfiguration. Um, I'll leave you with a storage efficiency example. Storage efficiency is something we keep coming up with again and again. How do I find wasted storage? Um, if you look in the vSphere farm for this particular cluster, this is the same large cluster we talked about at the beginning of this talk. The infrastructure view shows that storage is a limiting resource. Very good. But how did we get here? If you start with the time analysis, August through November, we find that there was significant VM sprawl in late October. So if you see the number of VMs, the total number of VMs. Now, of course, remember we're talking about data store space. So we don't just count the running VMs, but all the VMs, because they're all sitting on the disk, whether they're running or not. And today, this, um, this cluster is hosting more than 1.5 thousand uh, VMs. But it started off with about 200 or so. And in mid-October, lots of VMs were added. Toward the last half of October, the number reached uh, almost 1.5K. And in November, there was another bump. Meanwhile, data store space used at the bottom, uh, it is rising even faster than the VMs. And it seems that the rot had set in earlier in October, that is <laughs> where uh, VMs were flat. So let me just show you what we did. Again, as usual, a correlation map. This correlation chart, it shows the effect more clearly because it shows clear vertical and horizontal lines. Data store space used on the x-axis and the number of VMs on the y-axis. So um, you can see uh, we, we, we wrote a story on this. So in the beginning, uh, starting at the bottom left corner, when there are about 250 VMs, um, they were making do with less than 20 terabytes of space. right? But then in the same horizontal line, you go all the way up to 90 terabytes and you're still fewer than 300 VMs. So there's been a large increase in usage despite the constant number of VMs in that period. So we call that loose policy number one. Then at 90 terabytes, the number of VMs rises all the way to 750 or so without increasing the number of uh, terabytes used. So at the 90 terabyte lines, there are these vertical lines that go up. So we call that strict control period. So we are assuming that uh, the administrators were strictly controlling how much space those VMs were using. Snapshots were cleaned up, perhaps, and increases were strictly controlled with policies. Uh, then you entered another period of loose uh, policy. Uh, that's loose two, where you, the number of VMs, again, is staying under 800, but the, number, the usage of the disk has gone up to 110 terabytes. And since then, we've been in the strict control policy phase. So this allows you to kind of zoom in and say what happened exactly. So I'll just take you back uh, to zoom into October with the timeline. And here's an example. VMs are flat in this period, 14th to 15th of October, the top chart. But at the bottom chart, there's an increase. There's a huge um, slope 
going up from 16 to 32 terabytes of this space. So um, this, uh, these kinds of charts really help to tell you a story of why it is that storage has suddenly become such a critical issue when you have actually a lot of storage in this array. Um, so which brings us to the final topic of this optimization within optimization section, which is the utilization or demand reporting. And usually this is a question that we get asked all the time, that is customers want this. Uh, whether they're internal customers or external customers, they want to know uh, how much am I using over time? Um, and the obvious answer, and BCO has many features for this, is to generate automated reports. So in fact, the customer will often specify this. I want a regular feed of reports with all my systems. I want memory, CPU, and disk space, and all that. And they're set up as an automated basis. But the question is, do these actually get read or not? And there's a little mock. Uh, graph down below, which is number of times the report is actually read, drops substantially as the pages in the report increase. This is a normal tendency, because you know ultimately these automated reports are not very. So not very uh, interesting. Instead, reports that answer questions tend to be appreciated more. So, if you have spent some time actually analyzing the data and you have a hypothesis. Uh, and there are certain areas in vSphere that are very much, um, they hurt customers a lot, and they really want to know um, why is it that my, say, my data store space is increasing. Uh, so this is an example of another um, cluster with very similar issues, where you can clearly show uh, that here the x-axis is the number of virtual machines, and on the y-axis we have data store space used. And you can show the jumps in space usage clearly as to when they happened. I think that's uh, that's really an effective way of using BCO. So uh, to summarize what we talked about so far, so in part of managing vSphere BCO part one, uh, first of all, the concept of infrastructure capacity, sort of the wholesale capacity management of the whole infrastructure versus workload capacity, where you're critically examining individual workloads. The former is covered very well by the vSphere data that's already extracted by BCO, and we talked about it in this in this talk. The latter requires more data, and uh, it also requires you to do a little bit different things. And that's covered more in part two that's coming up. Uh, the out-of-the-box views are a useful starting point, uh, but you should do your own analysis on top of that. Uh, that is to say, uh, this also applies to the reports, as I said. Uh, you can have reports that are automatically spewing out uh, utilization numbers and capacity numbers, but really, um, when there are issues to be solved, it's much better to do your own analysis and use all the tools that are in BCO. Um, especially the correlation maps, they tend to be very useful, um, and also the time analysis. The virtual farms have been improved quite a bit uh, with more features, more built-in um, recognition of risks and finding efficiency opportunities for you. And the whole recommendations feature is new in 9.5. And all of these give you useful starting points. But after that, you do have to look at the data in, in sort of more skeptical way. Thresholds cannot just be automatically created for most of these things. Uh, so also, I showed you how to create um, or find your own threshold values for your infrastructure using the analyses. The third point is to use resource pools wisely in vSphere. 
That is, resource pools let you do much more than just label your VMs for different departments. By using reservations and limits, you can actually create uh, pools of resources and protect your SLAs from one customer from affecting another customer. And even if you don't use resource pools wisely, BCO will do its best to compute effective limits automatically, as you saw. BCO 95 has many more useful features for vSphere that we have not covered today. Um, we didn't go into the time forecasting model that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, we did not go into the virtual planner, uh, which has the study profile specific to vSphere. Um, but you can also see those in the product capability deck. Finally, a special thanks to Sudhakar. Uh, Sudhakar Karupaya is the capacity specialist at BMC IT, and he often brings up things that uh, we haven't thought of. Uh, he often pushes us to add features to the product, and, and all his efforts are highly appreciated. So where to find additional information? There are the communities. Please use that under capacity management. All the previous best practices series webinars are on the web. And with that, I'll hand it over back to Steve. Steve? Thank you, Sadia. That was a um, great presentation, as always. Uh, thanks to everybody for taking the time to join us for this webinar session today. Um, just to reiterate, the slide deck and the recording will be made available on the community of the BCO, uh, BMC BCO communities links uh, that are shown on the screen at this point in time. Uh, and please be sure to join us again in the new year for part two when uh, you know, we'll go into this topic in more detail and there will also be a focus on the uh, capacity analysis techniques as applied to VMware VMs, which is uh, based on a, a, a um, a case study presentation that was given by um, one of our colleagues to the uh, CMG recently, so I'm sure that will be of interest to uh, a lot of the people on this call today as well. So on that note, uh, I think we can conclude today's call. So thanks again to everybody for joining, uh, and, and thanks to Sadia for the presentation today. So uh, back to yourself, Jamie, if that's okay, to uh, conclude the call. Thank you, sir. Again, that does conclude today's conference. We do thank you for your participation. Mm -hmm.